Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast. I'm Callum Jones. This week, we're joined by Anne Ashworth, assistant editor of The Times, Catherine Griffiths, our banking editor, and Tom Knowles, our economics correspondent. With less than a fortnight ago, we'll be talking about the general election later. But first, it's been an interesting week for Royal Bank of Scotland. Let's go back nine years. Like, I wouldn't want there to be any doubt in anyone's mind at all, other than I'm extremely sorry that this has come about. I echo entirely uh, the sentiments that the chairman expressed on behalf of all of the board earlier on. This is is something about which I am extremely sorry. Fred Goodwin, the former RBS boss there, speaking to shareholders almost a decade ago, letting them know how extremely sorry he was for being at the helm as it was taken to the brink. But sometimes for some people, sorry isn't enough, and it certainly wasn't for thousands of shareholders who felt they were duped by a rights issue just months before the bank's government bailout. Catherine, it's hard to know how many journalists have attempted to get an interview with Fred Goodwin over the past decade. He probably keeps a special bin just by his front door just for all the interview bids as they've piled through his letterbox over the years. But now he might be forced to break cover. Yep, he might be forced to break cover if this case does actually go to court um, in sort of fairly extraordinary developments this week, uh, despite the fact that it was first filed five years ago. Even on the court steps, um, it was the case was adjourned for two days and then a third day as the two sides got closer towards a settlement. Um, and so it's in the balance now. I mean, I think most people think it will settle. So th- those who are waiting to see Fred surface after a decade and actually have to um, give comments about what happened will probably be disappointed. So the stakes are quite high for RBS. They're pretty determined to avoid that kind of embarrassing situation then. Yes, there are some sort of quite interesting conspiracy theories out there about what's going on. I mean, obviously, they are keen to avoid all this going through the press, because while the people who run Royal Bank of Scotland now are entirely different from those who ran it at that point, it isn't great for any institution to kind of have all their their worst period of history dragged up into the spotlight again. But there might be a few extra dimensions, which include the fact that Royal Bank is still 72% government-owned, but the Chancellor went out of his way a few weeks ago to say that we all need to live in the real world and that the government might want to start selling shares at what they would see as fair value and that fair value would be less than the price the government paid to save Royal Bank. Shares about half of that level at the moment. So if you sort of take that a bit further and you think that um, that could potentially come later in the summer, maybe after the six month results, if those results are quite good, the government might have a chance to sell in, say, August. Well, if you've got an awful court case going on, which is sort of day after day battering people about how awful RBS is, it just doesn't feel very good time to start selling shares. So that might be in place slightly too. And almost nine years have passed since RBS was bailed out. How closely do you think people outside the city and Fleet Street actually follow this saga? 
I can't imagine that people are following every dot and comma, but I think there is still out there a vast resentment about what happened, that taxpayers had to bail out these businesses. A very easy way to in infuriate anybody is to ask them about what they think about Fred Goodwin's £300,000-plus pension. He lost his knighthood, he's got a decent pension. But I think there is also a kind of abiding, there will always be a fascination in just how good the outcome has been at Lloyd's, but that RBS is still in the mire, and that maybe the government's desire to say enough is enough, let's put the past behind us, is a very, very healthy impulse. Catherine, uh, you mentioned obviously the, the difference in the share price. Philip Hammond suggesting that the government might be willing to start selling RBS shares at a loss relatively soon. Is there is there an appetite to really sell down shares in RBS in government at the moment? Yes, I think there is an appetite. I mean, obviously the government's got a lot going on, but I think that the, I think that the treasury does want to start selling down, not least because everyone knows there is absolutely no prospect of them getting anything like the the price they paid, and that's for quite a few different reasons. But some of those reasons are quite legitimate, which are that RBS has had to sell off a lot of stuff. They had to do that as part of their state aid conditions. And so it sort of stands to reason that their share price might look quite different now. Um, one thing that's really quite interesting about the, the court case, I would say, is the issue of costs. Because some people might say that what Royal Bank of Scotland has been doing is racking up such enormous costs on its side that for the other side, as the group of shareholders who want to carry on suing it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, their cost burden, of course, gets bigger and bigger if they lose. And certainly the judge said this week, as it asked a question as to whether RBS was, um, well, I don't know if he explicitly asked this question, but he certainly signalled it, I think, that perhaps RBS was doing this deliberately in order to put off the other side from carrying on with its case. And I think actually that resonates with the public um, in, in a general sense, that here is a very big bank basically throwing its weight around in a sense. And of course, the, the extra irony in this situation is that 72% of that bank is owned by the taxpayer. The legal fees, £100 million pounds is the figure. Is that just to date? Yes, yes. And actually, quite a nice little nugget um, is that, again, that was kind of highlighted by the judge and criticised, was that just in the three months running up to the trial, that's, of course, the trial that they still haven't started, <laughs> that the lawyers spent £9 million in three months. That's £750,000 a week. And given that... One of the problems this week is that has been that the shareholder side haven't been able to get in touch with all of their group. They don't appear to have their addresses. And you might think when these kinds of costs are being racked up, that one simple thing, making sure you've got people's addresses and phone numbers correct, might be something you could do quite easily. For that kind of money, yes. Well, exactly. I mean, and again, the judge said that, that RBS had... Um, layer upon layer of paralegal. I mean, it's it's quite... You go along to the court and I think there were 17 QCs, 17 barristers, sorry, on the RBS side alone all sitting there in court. It's, it's kind of unbelievable. If Fred Goodman had his day in court, which is not the day he really wants to have, is there anything on which he could shed light 
something that might help us to put this behind it behind us is the one issue that he could clarify that we all would like to know more about what is the what would be the killer question to that guy well i think i think the killer question to that guy might be why why did you go ahead with the abn amro transaction in 2007 when it was increasingly obvious to everyone that the world was kind of coming to a cliff edge moment. And I think some people think they know the answer to that, which is that Fred Goodwin is a very hubristic individual um, who had to win. But actually, it, it doesn't appear to be the case, or certainly nothing has come to light so far that would suggest he he is a fraudster. He he personally wanted to benefit. I mean, over and above the fact that obviously the more successful the bank was in the past, the harder that the bank dro- drove its earnings per share, the bigger his pay p- packet was. But I don't think anyone really sees Fred as a sort of person trying to massively, massively line his own pocket in an illegal way. But from a kind of state of mind point of view, I, I would like to ask him that question. Um, what people do say about this court case is that what what would be really great to get is their former finance director on the stand because he that's Mr that's Guy Whitaker Guy Whitaker yes and because you know he can't really kind of hide behind a oh I can't remember or or it's a long time ago he was the finance director they were at that point preparing what was then the biggest rights issue in corporate history in the UK it could be quite a sticky wicket for him trying to justify that. We've certainly got an interesting few weeks ahead and if you want to follow this story, the team will have more in the paper and online each day. But now you may have heard that there's a general election going on. Campaigning has resumed following Monday night's terrorist attack in Manchester. The Conservatives remain ahead in the polls, but their lead over Labour has waned somewhat over recent weeks. Tom, you covered the 2015 general election from Westminster and following it this time around as economics correspondent. What have the standout moments been for you over recent weeks? Well, I think... First of all, it has to be the rather disappointing interview Theresa May gave with Andrew Neil. I mean, we were all talking about, about it in the office the following day, and she just seemed very out of her depth in anything other than sort of home office stuff. I think that that's coming to be shown as the disadvantage of being the longest serving home office secretary in recent history is that when it came to the NHS or the deficit, she was just stumbling and mumbling around and couldn't answer questions and didn't look like a strong contender. But ultimately, she kept going back to the point that she said, you know, who do you want me to lead through Brexit negotiations, me or Corbyn? I think a lot of voters will think, well, even though you've got faults, we'll pick you over Corbyn. And we're through the manifestos now and on to the home stretch. Which policies have really stood out for you from each of the parties? What I've been astonished by is the lack of appeal to hearts and minds. There's been no feel-good in any of these manifestos. And in the Tory manifesto in particular, there wasn't that appeal to the Tory heartland, to the things they cherish, like home ownership. It's very difficult, actually, to work out what the strategy on housing is. And also, this the social care provisions that we've all been talking about, those provisions that provoke that really quite embarrassing U-turn. What is it saying to people that you are attempting to save and that all may be forfeit? And we also know that there's going to be huge problems if 
these provisions are enacted in actually trying to get the money out of people's estates. And I suspect that local authorities who try to reclaim these care costs from families will not meet with any success. They will just abandon the attempt. Why did the Tories take that approach when drafting the manifesto, though? Was it because they were focusing on Brexit or was it sheer confidence having looked at the polls? Do you know, if we knew what explained and what was the basis for this decision, we know a great deal more. I mean, it is said that it was taken by Theresa and some of her closest advisers, but I don't know that to be true. But it seemed to me that it's not going to continue to play well on the doorsteps. Catherine, the pound, of course, um, the pound jumped to, to its highest levels in, in a number of months when the, when the election campaign was first called. It fell at the start of this week when those polls fell to, to single digits in some of the Sunday newspapers. What does the city actually make of the campaign? What has it been thinking over the past few weeks? Well, I think we've seen the city kind of, or business, complaining about some of these things that don't suit business, like workers on boards and fat cat pay and things. Um, and I think we have to sort of discount some of that because clearly business can can manage some of those changes. Um, but I think through the kind of perspective of Brexit, um, I expected after the manifesto for certainly for sort of financial institutions to be quite downhearted because the Prime Minister chose to sort of reiterate the whole uh, no deal is bad, worse than a bad deal. They absolutely hate that that message. But they were far more kind of pragmatic about it, really, and of the view that um, they've got their eye on the, the prize, which is a strong Conservative victory. And they think that means that Theresa May will be able to see off the more extreme Brexiteers and therefore get a sort of a better, more sensible deal for the city. That's basically how they read it. Yeah. And, you know, I've been talking to those in the property world who who try and attract investment in, into the London and the UK. And they were saying they're talking to sort of Asian buyers and those in the Middle East. And Brexit hardly even figures as a as a problem now. You know, they, they sort of look through it. And, and then, though, you know, someone was saying they were talking to investors in Saudi who were saying, well, look, look next door to Yemen or Syria. We've got way bigger problems than Brexit. So we'll continue investing there. Perhaps in a sign of the campaign and so far, none of us have mentioned Labour yet. It's true. But have they enabled us? Has there anything in their demeanour during this uh, election enabled us to really seriously discuss their policies? It has become... Everything has become about Jeremy Corbyn. And if you were a Labour candidate, you'd despair about the lack of debate on the tax proposals and other plans in the manifesto. This has become, it's Theresa versus Jeremy, isn't it? Rather than what would Labour do for you? I think that's so true. And actually, the Labour manifesto had some pretty good policies that some people were, you know, quite pleasantly surprised by. Um, but uh, Labour candidates have said that when Corbyn comes up on the doorstep, especially in the north of England, the fact that he wouldn't condemn the IRA and wouldn't sing the national anthem are two, interestingly, two topics that just keep coming up. So there is this real sort of anger against the leader as perhaps being out of touch with those outside of London. So... We're wrong to be sitting here discussing the manifestos. What you have to do is that appeal to hearts and minds of the leader. People don't want to be embarrassed by the figure who's representing them on the international and on the national stage. 
and really the dial probably doesn't move so much in favour of who you're going to vote for during an election because essentially a great many people have already made up their minds which of the two, Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn, they prefer to represent them. And yet Theresa May didn't want a head-to-head television debate. It's, I mean, it's not in her interest. As, as we saw with the Andrew Neil interview, she's not actually very good under pressure or um, in interviews, I would say. And she's she doesn't, you know, she can get away with saying, well, I'm not going to do it. And, and she, I, I think she'll still win. So it, it, it makes sense for her. That's about all we've got time for. Robert Miller will be back in the chair next week. Until then, you can keep up to date with the latest developments at thetimes.co.uk and do subscribe on iTunes to get new episodes as we put them online. My thanks to Anne, Tom and Catherine for joining us in the studio and to you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.